welcome to uh, Dark Pedagogy Podcast. And uh, today, Stefan and I are having the great pleasure to uh, chatting with uh, Antti Sari, direct from uh, Finland. And uh, perhaps, uh, Stefan, just say hi. Hi. <laughs> and uh, Antti Sari, you are, of course, uh, one of our fellows, fellow students of the, the Dunkel Areas of Education and Pedagogy. But perhaps you could tell us a bit about yourself before we, we go into the interview. Yeah, Dunkel Pedagogik. Uh, yes, uh, thanks, Jonas and Stefan, for uh, inviting me into this uh, podcast program. I work at the University of Tampere, which is situated somewhere in the, in the middle of Finland. I work at the Faculty of Education and Culture, where I work as an assistant professor. And um, regards to the dark education and uh, environmental education themes in general, I'm uh, sort of a latecomer in the sense that my interest sort of started off as an offshoot to what I had been doing before. Because uh, before I had been uh, doing uh, the sociology and history of scientific knowledge in, in education and uh, studying the uses of behaviorism, cybernetics and uh, statistical reasoning, what have you in education but um, maybe uh, five years ago I, I uh, noticed that some of my close colleagues in philosophy of education here in Finland they started to get interested in uh, eco-phenomenology, Ted Toadvine's works and uh, also eco-justice education which is a theoretical framework for uh, combining anti-oppressive pedagogies and, and uh, forms of en- environmental education. And so there was a, a, a group of researchers organizing a conference around artistic approaches to eco-justice education. And uh, for some reason, they invited me to, <laughs> to, to have a presentation there. And uh, I just began to browse around the, the artistic approaches to environmental education and sort of uh, noticed that there, there seemed to be something missing in the uh, let's say, the, in the uh, aesthetic registers of, of uh, artistic approaches. And, and what, what I sensed that, that was missing was, was the, the uncanny aspect coming from uh, Sigmund Freud's, Freud's works. And, um, and it is something that is not, not, not just beautiful or sublime or, or horrific, but something else. And, and I felt that this is something that has something to do with with uh, the issues of ecological degradation, mass extinction, global warming, stuff like that. But I think we'll come to the concept of, of the, the uncanny, the unheimlich later on in the program. But um, anyway, I, I got to know uh, uh, an American colleague, uh, John Mullen from, from uh, University of Michigan. And he was, uh, became also really into Timothy Morton's work. Uh, the, the dark ecology stuff, and uh, he had a lot of, lot of uh, scholarship on uh, the triple O, the object-oriented ontology, and uh, we just bumped our heads together to to start thinking about what we could start writing, writing and and using using Timothy Morton's dark ecology stuff. But we we sort of tried to use these dark ecology ideas not in not as a as a kind of an exegetic way or identifying ourselves as Mortonians or identifying ourselves as uh, triple O 
theorists, but but sort of more like using using Morton's work as a kind of a springboard for for uh, studying these aspects, some of these aspects of environmental education theories, and uh, sort of picking up themes, riffs, or or styles of thinking in in Morton Morton's work to to see what we can get out of out of uh, that in, in relation to, to environmental education theories. And then we started to um, sort of problematize some of these prominent issues in environmental education uh, theories uh, in problematizing notions of place in place-based education, for example, um, problematizing temporality in the narrative structures of uh, environmental education and also examining how the, the notion of the uncanny might fit into the practices of critique inside philosophy of uh, environmental education. And that's how we got to, to writing a couple of articles, articles on these subjects. And uh, currently at the moment, we are actually looking forward to to uh, write a book around these articles and uh, around these subjects. And I know you guys have written a brilliant monograph already, so <laughs> it's going to be quite a, quite a challenge to get to the same level, of course. Thanks, Antti, for uh, that very interesting introduction. I think you touched already uh, some of the issues we wanted to raise today as well. So you mentioned that you also have connections to to US and uh, hearing you talk about where you come from, which perspective you bring to play. I, I hear some of my, my US background uh, coming into play as well. But, but when, you, when you think of your work on uh, dark places and so on, is there also something like a, a typical like Finnish perspective that you're bringing into play? Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything, anything Finnish or is there any national characteristic. I really can't say, but what I, what I have noticed is that there is something, I don't know if you share my, my view or my perspective, but it seems that a lot of, lot of these researchers who are getting into these uh, dark ecology themes are Northern European and, and North American scholars. So I don't know if there's, <laughs> there's something, something there some of the issues uh, that are, are discussed in Northern, Northern European uh, theories of education, if there's something that, that really catches on or resonates with, with dark pedagogy, I really can't say. I think just to add on that, I mean, it, for, for me, it's also a way of, I mean, there's this tendency in many, I guess, Scandinavian countries to, uh, to have quite, a, I mean, of course, we are smaller countries in an in international setting, but at the same time, there's this uh, biased and uh, more or less uh, implicit idea that, that, but we're also the greatest countries in the world. And, uh, and uh, I really like, and of course, there's a Danish, uh, uh, Finnish relationship here because you have the best uh, education system. And uh, we've been trying to learn about that for, for years, several of my colleagues have. But for me, working with several of these issues, the more dunkel perspectives, is also a way of opening up other arenas of critique and also understanding not only, of course, our national systems, but, but also opening up that, that we cannot only build on, on uh, our strong traditions and uh, our critical perspectives because some of those are not in line with the challenges that we meet in contemporary global and uh, national settings. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I don't know if, if, what do you think about this, but uh, 
to me, the, the, the Dunkel approaches to, to uh, education and uh, critical theories in education, I think that there, there is also the import of some of the psychoanalytic theories, or I don't know theories, but let's say themes in a more, more loose sense. And uh, at least in, in Finland, uh, the psychoanalytic approaches to studying education, they have been largely marginalized. And it is only only lately, maybe in the last few years, that these these approaches have been reintroduced in education theories. And with that, uh, some themes such as uh, studying traumatic experiences, studying traumatic knowledges, studying different forms of uh, silencing and repression, not only uh, uh, with regards to the environment, but also also several other political registers that have been reintroduced as, as critical critical themes of themes of studying. I will pick them up there. So you, you mentioned the, the psychoanalytical tradition as one of the inspirational places, but are there other ones or what do you have a personal take on the Dunkelheit or the darkness in education that you're also bringing into play? I think it, if I want want to get too autobiographical here, but, but uh, actually I, I grew up in a, in a coastal city in, in, in Finland, which is, was a small, very small uh, harbor and industrial town. And it has a really, really beautiful coastline with beautiful islands and uh, beautiful sea views, but it's also a place with a lot of industrial decay. And for me, the, the experience of in square code square quotes, uh, nature or the environment has al always been sort of uh, mixed with these, these elements and objects of not only pollution, but also, also uh, rust of, of decaying uh, industrial buildings and, and harbor docks. And so, so for me, it has always been sort of, let's say, natural way of experiencing things in a, this kind of a mixed, mixed way and maybe that speaks to, to sort of my attitude towards some of the environmental aesthetics in uh, environmental education. So that, that I, I really like the, the kind of um, the mixed aesthetics, not only the pure and the untouched and the pristine, but also the, the tarnished and the, the decaying aspects of, of nature and nature cultures. Interesting. I think that's also a experience. I think both Stefan and I, but I guess many others can can really relate to, or something that's also been, uh, I mean, underdeveloped in a environmental education perspective. But you are you are having a project right now, an ongoing project where you work with these perspectives uh, empirically. Could you tell yeah. us a bit about that? Yeah, with uh, two of my uh, younger colleagues, we are we have just uh, launched. A project that study, studies uh, environmental activists and envir environmental activism here in here in Finland, and doing this from a, of course, from a pedagogical and uh, pedagogical perspective and a perspective of self cultivation. And uh, actually, I was today at a at a local uh, high school where we are just about to launch a sub project, uh, a sub project where we are uh, studying studying the ways in which young students, young high school students try to sort of grapple with the uncanny and the aesthetically mixed aspects of 
global warming and sixth mass extinction and trying to look at how they use different forms of art, different uh, arts-based approaches, such as uh, painting, uh, dance, uh, documentary films, uh, drama, dance, you name it, to, to sort of express these perspectives, these uncanny or dunkel perspectives of, of uh, environmental change at the moment. So it's going to be really, really exciting and we are looking forward to, to getting really a mass of of different really really interesting really beautiful data out of out of this this sub project but then we also have a have a, a group of more experienced um, environmental activists working in in finland who who are trying to educate their local communities into adopting uh, more ecologically sustainable lifestyles, more eco ecologically sustainable structures of economy. And uh, we're trying to follow their work and interview them as to how they, they uh, grapple with the complexity of, of this, this uh, wicked problem that we, we call the global warming. So, so that's potentially really interesting as well. Maybe if I jump back to what you, what you were saying about uh, earlier about uncanniness and in the in the uh, Freudian tradition, but also where you were speaking of your personal touch on it on on the the decay. One of the things that I like very much about your work also is on, on the more recent work, uh, work where you go into temporalities. And one thing that I was uh, wondering when I was reading your work and so on is how and when you mentioned also this decay, and I was uh, directly reminded by. The work of late Mark Fisher on uh, ontology, where how how that decay and also this haunting aspect is unheimliche. Do we how do we understand it? Is it a, a longing for a past or you know a disconnection from the past? Is, is it is it nostalgia or how how do you look at it? Ah, that's a that's a really good question. I don't know if I think you have recognized a certain kind of uh, narrative form in some some. Uh, discourses of environmental education which sort of um, it sort of narrates a story of uh, alienation mm. in different registers and, and as a form of saying that a lot of our forms of uh, ecological catastrophes and lots of forms of uh, social injustices in, in our societies at the moment are imbued with a certain kind of an alienation of, of our culture from from uh, nature, alienation from our bodily existence, alienation from our authentic selves, alienation mm. from, from each other. And I think that that this this incorporates certain kind of a longing towards an unalienated existence. And uh, and I've always been troubled about this this kind of a story. And this kind of a narrative because it gets repeated mm. incessantly and uh and it sort of uh produces the fantasy of of uh, future uh fulfillment future belonging future dwelling and of course states that this is actually something that is possible for us mm. as humans but um i actually read a, a wonderful book a while ago that touches on these subjects in a, in a really interesting way it's a it's actually a novel by a finnish finnish uh, novelist markus nummi and the, the name of the the book in, in in english it's paris lost 
which is an obvious uh, reference to the John Milton uh, book, Paradise Lost. And it's a, I think it's a wonderful parable of a certain kind of a um, nostalgia or nostalgia for belonging and an overcoming of alienation. And it's also a funny one. And it, the, I can tell you the, the gist of the, of the story. It, it begins in a geography class in a comprehensive school. And suddenly the, the, the pupils in the, in the class rush to the, to the window and they see some object flying in the, in the, in the sky. And then they rush to the, the schoolyard and they see something that they think at first it's, uh, it's maybe an aeroplane or maybe it's a, it's a blimp. But soon they see that something sticks out of the object and it's the Eiffel Tower. And then they see the, the Ark of Triumph sticking out and then they see sewer pipes hanging loose from the, uh, from the object. And they see that this is Paris. That Paris has taken off France as, and it's now flying into the horizon. And then, then uh, people start looking for Paris all over the world and, and gazing into the, the skies or, or in, the, in the seas to, to try and find Paris again. So, and so expeditionary forces are, are uh, established and, uh, and then people start actually questioning whether Paris actually ever existed whether there is any kind of an evidence that there was such a thing as Paris in the place of the hole that it is now, now in, in, in France. And, and then they find photographs of uh, Paris, and then they hear about people who say that they have lived in Paris or visited Paris. But actually what they have is just photographs or accounts of being, or seeing maybe uh, the Eiffel Tower, but the Eiffel Tower is not Paris. Or then they uh, have photographs of um, Notre Dame, but Notre Dame is not Paris. So actually no one can really say that they have been in Paris or seen Paris. They have always seen parts and aspects of it. So what this comes down to, to eventually is that there, there is a committee of experts who study whether there ever was such a thing as Paris and whether it can be ever found. And then they say that maybe Sometime in the distant past, such a thing existed as Paris, but in another register, maybe there was never such a thing as Paris. So uh, I think this is a, as a kind of a postmodern novel, this is a beautiful way of, of uh, criticizing certain kinds of nostalgia for belonging in a place, or actually to speak about ever being in, dwelling in, or belonging to an environment because uh, how can you actually ever ascertain or draw boundaries around something that you can really call a place or something that you know and that that you really can can uh, feel like you dwell in it so so i think this this kind of a story is also a parable for for those forms of place-based pedagogies hmm. Let's try to rekindle our belonging, our natural belonging to an environment or to a community so that there is nothing alienated, there is nothing strange, there is nothing weird about being in a place. And, uh, and that, that's sort of that, those kinds of narratives of, of rekindling something that is lost, rekindling something that we have been alienated from is something that has been a little bit irritated me in the sense that that 
I think it's quite welcome to introduce the aspects of the uncanny to, mm. to these uh, discourses of place-based pedagogies or environmental education theories in, in more general. Mm. I had to directly think you were, the, I think you were pointing some, some other reference, but I had to think too about uh, Casablanca and, you know, ah, the, the, we will always, always have Paris, which I think yeah. is a quite nice way. If, if there was no Paris, uh, yeah. I think there is a, it, but it, relies, it relates maybe quite nicely to these Unheimliche, so lost yeah. of home. Yes. And I think what, what, what you're saying about the temporality there, because if there never has been, <laughs> we will still have. Yeah. So there the, the, may be some, some kind of identity to place which has not been uh, and is no, <laughs> uh, but yeah. we're seeking for it. Uh, yeah. uh, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think this has some resonances with certain uh, psychoanalytic theories, which, which sort of understand this kind of a longing as an as a echo of this longing towards unalienated, undifferentiated uh, experience of early infanthood as a kind of a fantasy that can actually never be realized because we are hopelessly alienated from, from the world just by virtue of being a subject, by virtue of having a language. So, I, so I think that's that's extremely interesting. I mean, I also have a dark uh, psychoanalytic past, uh, uh, and and exactly the point that um, that overcoming desires uh, and and be becoming uh, complete has been uh, quite quite a driver, uh, possibly for for all time of uh, mankind. But uh, we haven't really seen uh, super successful uh, ways of overcoming uh, any kinds of desires. So, uh, but anyways, I, I think it's extremely interesting, uh, your, your points here, Ansi, and, and it relates very well to, to the work we've done, both with the dark pedagogy, but also future works. And, uh, but what I'm also interested in is, of course, then, um, this critical uh, stance that you, you present, I think it's extremely important. But, but uh, are there also in this critical stance a, a, a positive stance? I mean, what's the uh, idea of education besides, of course, becoming more aware and critiquing? I mean, uh, should education uh, point in a certain direction or do we just invest our hopes in, in enlightenment uh, 2.0, full power the, the, towards the future? Or where do we go? <laughs> <laughs> That's not a small question. <laughs> no. uh, well, um, I think there are, uh, despite the name name uh, dark pedagogy or dark ecology, I think there are some really, really, uh, say, hopeful or positive aspects to it as well. And uh, one of those has to do, in my mind, has to do with the, the psychoanalytic aspect that we were discussing. And that a certain kind of an acceptance of an alienation and certain kind of a giving up of these fantasies of, of, of uh, undifferentiated, full, authentic existence. Uh, and um, with my colleague, uh, John, we have used uh, this, this um, actually two kinds of, uh, two, two sets of concepts that, uh, that we have uh, introduced as kind of uh, positive strategies of, of coping with and coming to terms with or being with uncanniness of uh, ecological awareness. And uh, 
one of these is is the, the kind of a strategy of uh, juxtaposition, which could be uh, let's say a pedagogical strategy for for um, trying to uh, incorporate the, the the multiplicity and complexity complexity of different approaches to to uh, experiencing our environment and um, I think uh, let me reach again towards uh, some ex uh, examples from from literature uh, I don't know if you read Foucault's uh, The Order of Things and there is an introduction to that that book where he references Jorge Luis Borges and his his uh, parable of a Chinese encyclopedia which is a kind of a weird uncanny encyclopedia where animals are classified in a in a certain way so that animals fall into classes of tigers those that are painted with a fine camel brush those that from afar look like uh, flies and those that that uh, really do not do not exist at all and and stuff like that and it feels kind of a really uncanny way of classifying animals and it's also it's uncanny but it's funny as well so um this i think this is a kind of a strategy of juxtaposition in the sense that that we disrupt our existing grids of intelligibility maybe about thinking about nature in in a sense of of kind of um trying to destabilize what we have normally thought about as as nature as environment as place as as a place of dwelling and introducing um, aspects and factors from maybe different uh, geological eras introducing aspects from uh, different kinds of cultures different uh, cosmologies different ways of making sense about nature making sense about reality and making sense about uh, these cultural nature divides etc so uh this kind of a strategy of juxtaposition could be uh, a way of, of um, maybe cultivating a more, in square quotes, more, maybe a more mature way of relating to environmental questions as not questions, as not phenomena that fit really neatly to our categories of, of nature, categories of nature and culture, but which are way more complex than that. And the, uh, the, the other, other strategy that we have pr proposed, and, and this especially comes from uh, psychoanalytic theory, is the strategy of working through. And uh, I think this harkens back to Freud and his, his notion of the talking cure about uh, trying to find ways of expressing those thoughts, those emotions that have been in one way or another been repressed or silenced in our experience. And I think that, that, that especially through arts, through uh, different kinds of performative arts, writing, uh, visual arts, we can maybe bring into discussion and hopefully in a safe way, those aspects of, uh, let's say climate change, other kinds of ecological disasters and declaration that in our culture, in, in our ways of uh, understanding reality have been silenced or have been 
uh, repressed in one way or another. So that uh, this, this repression and silence, silencing really plays into the, the, the deepening and the sustenance of, of ecological problems in the first place. So if we cannot really talk about the, the darker aspects of, of uh, environmental issues, then, then I don't think we, we probably have any, any fruitful uh, ways of, of really tackling these, these problems in the first place. Difficult question, very interesting question. So maybe <laughs> I lower the level a bit and come from the, you know, please here do, comes everything. I, uh, I, I'm find, finding it hard to, to uh, use my English to express these, these complex questions. I think it was a very complex and giving answer. Uh, but uh, to come then and uh, to pick up on the last piece you mentioned on arts and maybe move away from the, the high culture to the low culture and the low borough culture. Uh, something that I think Jonas and I also find quite interesting is then to work with popular culture and our ways of thinking and so on. Is there anything uh, from popular culture right now which, which comes to mind, which inspires your thinking? Well, I, I love Lovecraft, uh, obviously. Uh, and I, I, was, I was a Lovecraft fan when I was a teenager, but uh, you've taken the, the, the Lovecraft thing already, so I cannot really use Lovecraft anymore. So. No, but, that's, that's uh, enough for everybody, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, one, one that comes to mind uh, is, is, um, is a sort of a comic book or a, one might say graphic novel. That's from, probably from the 80s or 90s. Uh, it's by um, Richard McGuire, who has this book called Here. And it's a, it's, it's a really big a bit of an artsy book, but, but it's, it starts off with a, a, a drawing from a, a living room, probably somewhere in, in contemporary United States. And then when you turn the page, you notice that in this room, you have these comic book strip boxes that have objects, animals from different eras, so that suddenly in the middle of, of the living room, you see a buffalo or uh, people or families from different, uh, different cultures, maybe, maybe uh, Native Americans, or maybe you see, see uh, Americans from the 18th century. And then you start seeing different kinds of animals. You start seeing uh, boxes uh, from uh, different geological eras so that in the living room, you suddenly might have a part of an ocean bed which is, I think, a nice way of, uh, again, of juxtaposing our, our different notions of what is a place, or what is, what is, what is the, the now that we are actually experiencing. So that when the, when the reader gets through with the, with the, with the book, he, he's really kind of disoriented about the, the very notion of what, what it means to be here. If I, if, if I make the twist then back to the, the difficult question again, and because I think it fits <laughs> quite nicely. Uh, yeah. In your recent paper, I think also with John Mullen, you, you went into the idea of, uh, used the idea of strange loops, uh, something yeah. that Jonas and I had been looking at. So uh, yeah. can you tell us something about that? Yeah, strange loops. This is, this is uh, again, uh, a term used by Timothy Morton. And, uh, uh, and he uses the word strange in a almost in every every page of his <laughs> his work and so that the the notion of uh, 
strange loop refers to this kind of a looping or a, a paradoxical nature of our uh, ecological awareness. And I guess that when he's thinking about uh, a strange loop, he's, he's thinking about like a Mobius strip, which is a kind of a topological plane that only has one surface so that you can, you can make a Mobius strip if you take a strip of paper and then you turn the one end 180 degrees and then you paste the, the ends to one another so that you have this kind of a twisted surface. And uh, then, then it's, it appears to have those, these two surfaces, but it actually has only one surface because when you try to draw a line horizontally in the strip of paper, you notice that this, this line starts to cover both sides of the, or both, both sides of the, of the paper. So, um, so uh, this, this is something that is, on the one hand, it's a really simple concrete thing, but it's at the same time, it is kind of a difficult, thing to think about. You all actually have this, this paper that has only one surface. So um, I think Morton uses this Mobius strip as a, as a metaphor for uh, describing our environmental or ecological awareness. And, and, and the way that, that these, these, maybe these, um, how should I say, it? these dichotomies that we use, often use when thinking about uh, environmental issues, uh, subject, object, um, culture, nature, the future and the past, that these uh, differentiations, when we really start to bore into the uh, eco environmental awareness, these uh, dichotomies actually start to blend into one another in a kind of a paradoxical, uncanny, way. So um, to give an example, uh, Morton uses these in, uh, in analyzing the discourses of uh, the life sciences, for example, that uh, if you look at uh, evolutionary biology, for example, you see that, that uh, to know anything about our biological past, to know anything about environmental uh, our environmental history and the history of life, you, you require humans. And so that there is no other species or any, no other simian that can do evolutionary biology. There is no other species that has the capacity to make these kinds of reasonings, to make these kinds of observations, build these kinds of instruments to, to know about uh, evolutionary history. But then again, these say very same capacities of, of reasoning, of observing, are a result of the evolutionary process itself. So this is something that is uh, quite obvious, uh, by, uh, quite simple, but then again, there is this kind of a mutual envelopment between the subject and the object of, of knowing about life, and knowing about our evolutionary history. And maybe the, the, the same thing that, that uh, goes also for the discourses of uh, post-humanist thought. So that <laughs> to, to, to discuss or decenter our human approaches to, to or our, or our uh, anthropocentric 
approaches to, to uh, knowing about the environment than these, these ways of decentering or dismantling the human at the center. These are all bound up with uh, reasoning and language, which are very, very much human. So that to, to, to be post-human is to be very much human in this sense. So that there is again this, this flipping into one another of the, the opposite. Thank you, Anzi. Uh, that's a, I mean, it's something that uh, Stefan and I are working on and looking also for, for future projects. And perhaps as now you are one of our first, but also official members of the Dark Pedagogy Society, the not yes. so secret uh, society that we insist. I received <laughs> your, your pins in the mail. Thank you very much. They are beautiful. Thank you. But, uh, but uh, perhaps some thoughts on the potentially global uh, movement that we represent here? I mean, where, where should we go? Are we going all uh, empirical now or should we run for office? Or, um, I mean, uh, what's, what's in the cards for the next uh, 30 odd, year, odd years of, uh, of uh, being interested in these uh, uh, dunkler uh, issues? Wow. A, 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 a little, a little uh, question just to round off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't know. Um, I think personally, this, this, uh, these approaches are taking more and more uh, space in my, my own research. So, so that this, this whole study of uh, sociology and history of expert knowledge in education is going more and more into, into the margins. And, and this, this uh, something that started off as a kind of an offshoot is taking taking more and more uh, space space in my in my work but i think it's a, it's a it's really great to to see that people who are engaged in these dark perspectives are slowly finding each other and it's great that you have this 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 i don't know how official or or how how established your uh, <laughs> dark dark pedagogy center is but i and i but i really hope that it will find more and more scholars as well, as well as artists and, and pedagogues working in the field. And so do we. Thank you very much, Anzi. This Thank was an excellent uh, way into your thinking and we're really happy uh, for you. you spending this time and we look forward to more collaborations. Thank, Thank you. you.